Hey now, other people call me Paul. Thanks for listening, at least to the intro music and the first 10 seconds of this podcast. Today is a special day on the 3DL podcast. Hey, Becky. Hi. Have you spent much time with our guest today? I spent 35 years with my guest. Oh. The guest wow. today. So it's your mom? <laughs> no, it's me. It's me. Oh, I'm what? a special guest today. Oh, yeah. we are bottom of the barrel, aren't we? Oh, yeah. What is this, like episode 29? Um, 11, I think. Uh, yeah, 11, I think. Oh. I, it's kind of like, I feel like you're throwing the football and then running under it to catch it, you know, and cartoons, how they do that. You throw it to yourself. Oh, <laughs> you should make sure you um you laugh at your own jokes and and ask yourself good questions because you know I'm not gonna do that. I do that anyway. Uh, nice, good. No problem. Any la- any last words before we go deal with this guest of ours? Um, don't hang up, everybody. Hi everyone, my name is Becky Matz, and I feel grateful for three-dimensional learning. Wow, uh, I feel this feels kind of like a religious experience today, talking about gratefulness. Well, I don't know about that. Should I explain? Um, nah. Maybe it'll come up later. Well, in the intro, we said this was either a special episode or a weird episode. It's definitely weird because um, we're used to playing good cop, bad cop on real life persons, as mm-hmm. my three year old three year old would say. <laughs> we should probably be all right. We tend to understand what the other person is saying at least like twenty or thirty percent of the time. Does that seem fair? Mm-hmm. Your daughter sounds like my kind of person. I uh, also use the word persons a lot. <laughs> That's not and some, a pig. It, well, I get I catch flack for it, but uh, sometimes it just makes more sense than people. Hmm. We'll see if it comes up today. I love it when she says it. Well, one of the one of our main purposes of this podcast has been for us to effectively put off other things, and I want to <laughs> I want to right now make an argument that that's not necessarily a bad thing because I was thinking about procrastination. I think I think it implies action, doesn't it? procrastination well you're actively not doing anything no it's more than that if you if someone's just sleeping or like drooling on themselves we don't say they're procrastinating right Mm, yeah yeah, right it's doing something else instead of the thing you're supposed to be doing sure there you go okay so i feel like we've made the inevitable procrastination into productive procrastination Hmm. that was my thought today I do. Um, I'm a very productive procrastinator, especially, especially in times of like, uh, you're packing the car to go, or you're you were packing your bags to go on a trip, and I always think that's a great time to like think about how you want the house to look when you come home. Okay, so now you're like my daughter with persons, and you're like my wife with doing all kinds of random stuff before we leave anywhere. It's very productive. It is procrastination, but it is very productive. I'm pretty sure it's also genetic. Does your mom do that too? Uh, I don't know. 
Is she listen? She might be listening. <gasps> I never thought about that. <laughs> I don't know. I thought about. I, 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 sorry, I'm cutting you off. I'll let you start again. I, I meant to say hi to my mom at some point too, because she listens. Yeah. Oh. Hi, mom. <laughs> I don't know. Um. <laughs> I think a little. I think a little. She definitely thinks about what the house should look like when you return, you know, and not wanting it to be a mess. Both of our listeners, our moms, I guess, <laughs> um, they might have somebody. <laughs> they might have some idea of your personality from listening to other episodes. And I looked it up. You're definitely an ISTJ. How do you know? A logistician. Am I that transparent? Practical and fact-minded, whose reliability cannot be doubted. I'm pretty sure when I did the Myers-Briggs back in oh, 2005 or something, that was pretty sure that's what I came up as. Yeah. It's also the most common one. Yeah, super yeah. common and mostly just want to be by myself, you yeah. know, all the time. It's partly because you don't like dealing with other people's um, lesser dedication to their logic and work ethic, I think. I care a lot about people doing what they say they'll do, and myself included. And so I feel very, um, yeah, if I don't do something hmm. that I said I would do, I have like, a, I have a big sense of guilt about it. And it's, you know, I have to kind of like own up to the fact that people fail and myself included. So I have to, you know, give myself another's grace. As a side note, there is another Dr. Rebecca Matz, who is a dermatologist in texas what we should be friends isn't your middle initial l i think her middle initial is l too but yeah my middle initial is l that's my maiden name lati l-a-h-t-i it's mm. a finnish name very awesome you're talking about maiden your maiden name and you said it was awesome right it is, is that what you just said <laughs> so we're the uh, we're talking about moms, and that that is my mom's maiden name. What? Awesome? <laughs> yeah. A-W-S-U-M-B. Awesome. No. Yeah. Wouldn't you have kept that? Probably if it wasn't the 70s, she probably would have kept it. Wow. <laughs> I'm <is>. floored. Okay. <laughs> okay, Becky, can you take us on a uh, a a little tour down memory lane th on the path to Becky Matt's 2021, how you got here. Yeah. So my path to a path to where I am now. So I, um, so I grew up in the Western suburbs of Chicago and had an excellent high school chemistry teacher. He was on the mm -hmm. um, Letterman show about, I don't know, two dozen times doing demos with kids. He would bring them out what? and all that. Yeah. Um, I remember feeling like I was a pretty good, I like understood it really well. And then I decided to go to, um, to choose that for a degree in college. I went to university of Illinois and I really felt there that like, I actually didn't know that much chemistry. Like I was pretty, I, you know, I was sort of a mediocre chemistry student was interested in it, but I kind of wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what to do after, um, school. And so I don't know. This doesn't seem quite right. <laughs> it's not even four o'clock. It is. It's a. It's a beer, but it's a beer. Beer, comma root. <laughs> okay. Anyway, sorry. Is it too long? Maybe it's going too long. 
Um, <laughs> I, I didn't know we were going to go back this far, but it's cool. Yeah, cut it out. You reminded me that the one teacher that I remember from high school was my chemistry teacher, too. Hmm. Anyway, so a- after school, I thought, I don't, I'm not sure what I want to do with this degree, so I decided to go to grad school. And then in grad school at Michigan, I... Um, kind of got interested in a small chem ed project and that sort of ballooned and became a real focus of my interest. And then that sort of led to a postdoc at Michigan's teaching center. And then eventually to the position I had at MSU, which has now led me back to Michigan, which is why it's very confusing. So you're like hard science life. I see things like polyplex exposure. Yeah. And what I, from what I can gather, it's like some tech um, technique stuff for imaging and like basic cancer research is that yeah true yeah so um in the lab that I was in in grad school uh my advisor had had lots and lots of varied interests um you didn't really have to wear goggles or a lab coat in the bio lab so I chose that one and it was a brand new (laughs) building it had like a beautiful atrium and really nice light and everything and so um that's I ended up going over there and so I really um, I did most of my work with cells and did like gene transfection experiments and stuff. And it was really, it was really cool. It was, um, you know, I, I always, for, for several years, I sort of had a dream of like doing education research for nine months out of the year, but then going back to someone's lab and basically being a volunteer for three months mm-hmm. every year. But anyway, I never made that happen, but it seemed like it could be really cool. So now after that, you've done, you know, you've got, you've done some stuff you've done, um, 3dl stuff mm-hmm. you've done you've done you've looked at like lecture and lab coherence stuff you looked at some uh you looked across disciplines at student performance and then and connecting specifically content from biology and chemistry mm-hmm. and then the gender performance differences stuff it's a lot of stuff and not very much time that's cool there's a couple of little coherent threads in there 3dl being one of them um by mm-hmm. virtue of the collaboration with this you know, really wonderful research team, but a lot of the other stuff in there is some of the other stuff in there is kind of one-off stuff that I just, you know, yeah. got interested and went that went went to that light for a little while, and then I got interested over here and went to that light for a little while, and I was really fortunate to have a job that, you know, kind of afforded me that afforded me that uh, position. Okay, so everybody everybody's episode has like a theme, or it, it ends up being more like an undercurrent <laughs> to the to the show. We're trying to get around to it though. Um, there's lots of things that you'd be a credible witness for, but given where we kind of are in the story of 3DLs, Corey just told us about the fellowship and Debbie talked about some of the reasons sometimes that transforming can be hard, both mm-hmm. K-12 and higher ed. We thought you could share some of your deep reservoir of knowledge on this idea of supports and barriers. Hmm. Before we go there, before we dig into that, um, I'm guessing that a lot of our focus is going to be on qualitative research results. And in my first go around as a scientist, that word was almost dirty. It it almost, yeah. I mean, not, you know, it almost, not that kind of dirty. It almost implied that you hadn't taken the time to like properly analyze your data. Mm -hmm. So could you just for my former self and anybody else, could you just tell us what um, qualitative research even means maybe? start there yeah um so i'm you know certainly not an expert in qualitative research but i've done a little bit of it and i've worked around and with people who have done you know a lot of 
qualitative studies. And qualitative studies are not concerned with, they're not as concerned with generalizability as they are, as um, quantitative studies are. They're, um, they're much more concerned with how and why things happen and in really just deeply illustrating what the human experiences are of whatever the research question is at hand. So they're super interesting. I think they're actually more fun to read than quantitative studies. Like they're just, when done well, they're so much, I think they're really, they're much more interesting. So, well, before we go any further with that, maybe can you just contrast that with what we mean when we say quantitative research? So in quantitative research, you're using numbers of some form to, you know, to summarize some experience in our realm, some human experience, several ways you can get those numbers, right? From surveys or from observations or from a lot of the things in our own realm would be like student records, like course grades and the number of times you took Mm. courses and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the relationships between those numbers and outcomes that you care about or that a researcher cares about, it can be really illuminating. Okay. So, um, this phrase supports and barriers is one that we kind of love to use in like, you know, in the, it's in all like grant applications and all of our research questions and stuff. Yeah. What do we, can we, can you kind of rephrase it for us? What do you mean when we say supports and barriers? Are there synonyms or what, mm, yeah. what do you mean by that? Affordances and constraints. Hmm. Does that that doesn't help? <laughs> well, you know, I think I you know, one of the reasons that it's really challenging is that people don't just you know when people are talking about something that's challenging or something that you know that is a barrier that is a constraint, they often are not just saying like, "Man, my classes are so big, and that's the really like that's the worst thing ever." And I have five hundred students, and I can't do anything about it, and it's a huge barrier, mm-hmm. right? Like it's often they, yeah. they come back to back um, in qualitative data, especially, or, or or that's how you know that's how I saw it. They come back to back, and so we sort of had to figure out how to unpack like when somebody talks about something that's challenging, but then they kind of immediately offer a solution or somebody else immediately offers a solution mm. or kind of like goes, you know, in this back and forth with them or whatever. Like, what does that mean? Like, what does that look like? Cause then you just sort of have like, you know, if one's red and one's blue and then you have those like whole mix of purple, it's like, okay, well, what's the support with the barrier? Like, you know, mm. that's kind of, yeah. that was tricky to figure out, but um, I think it can be done for purposes of coding anyway. You do this real creepy thing where you, um, secretly record what what people are talking about you put a so okay so let's back up a little bit there's these people in this fellowship and they get together and they talk every so often every month or whatever Mm -hmm. and part of your set of data is comes from a little tape recorder or something Mm -hmm. in the middle of their table they're talking to each other that's the creepy part yeah so why do it then and there yeah rather than like interviewing them after the fact or whatever yeah yeah. yeah, you know, um, it's funny. I So coming from grad school and my postdoc, I really had no qualitative data experience at all. Like, you know, I was just green about everything. I still feel green about everything, but um, was even more green then, you know, like, and my colleague who had been at MSU for a couple of years already by that time, she and I were kind of working on the same project. And this is not the one that you're exactly referring to, Paul, but a different one that got me thinking mm-hmm. about audio data. Um 
And we started going to all these meetings where these administrators were getting together and they were talking about the bio initiative and they were talking about how to like make the world a better place for all the bio students at Michigan State. And um, my colleague, Sarah Hardaleza, who is just like so phenomenal and really, she's a really wonderful person. Um, she said to me, we should record these meetings. And I was like, because she's creepy like I know yeah I mean that's that was exactly my response I was like I don't understand why we would do that like what would we do with all those data you know like I didn't even really see them as data at that time I was just like Mm -hmm. this is super weird like I don't understand and so you know but so, so we ended up doing that we ended up doing it really thanks to Sarah for a couple of years and then and then we realized that those audio streams could be used as data Um, And then we ended up writing paper, um, doing a study really based on them. And so, you know, she kind of got me thinking about it. I think one of the things that's good about collecting data like that is that, especially if the implement is fairly small, right? If it's a phone, especially, right? A lot of phones can just do this, like, no problem. You don't even need a recorder. But Uh you set your phone down in the middle of a group of people and they totally forget that it's there. You know, so you get this really authentic set of responses and you get to see it over time in a way that you don't get with an interview. So I thought that was kind of um, interesting. And it's also a really easy way to collect data. You can be like super lazy about it. Like all you have to do is get the recorder to the meeting and then you're like, you know, your data is collected. I know there is technology out there. Um, this is, I don't this is a long time ago, I saw this, but you can get speech. You can extract speech with no audio. If you have a... If you have a high enough resolution camera and some kind of thing that, you know, like a bag of chips or something. And so if you know, like how the bag of chips responds to sound and, and you can, and you can see, they, they do, people do this. It's even creepy. So if you don't have a, if you don't have a audio recorder, you can always just take a really high resolution. Just make sure there's a bag of chips in front of them too. That seems more difficult to set up. For, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the data. So the um, kind of the work of synthesizing and looking through all this stuff and eventually publishing it is kind of something that's your, you know, it's in progress. Yeah. And you've shown me some of the, you show me some of it. And I thought about like going through and trying to ask good questions about it, but I don't want that would a that would require me doing homework. And <laughs> no homework. I don't. I also don't want to, you know, I don't want to add my color to your interpretation. And also, Larry King did no homework. So what's the, uh, what, as far as supports and barriers for these people that want to implement 3DL in their class, what's the, what do you find? I should say first off that a lot of this work was done by a really, like one of the most phenomenal undergraduate research students I'd ever, I got, had the fortune of working with. His name is Brandon Goocher. Um, Brandon's going on to become a doctor, but some example like some of the big categories that came up around barriers and levers with respect to implementing three-dimensional learning, a lot of them had to do with um, assessments. Some of the fellows voiced feeling like that was pretty overwhelming. Like it's pretty overwhelming to think about writing assessments that are three-dimensional and, um, you know, alongside these pieces of evidence-centered design where you're thinking about like, okay, what is the evidence? And so, that, you know, right. that was kind of, that was a barrier that was voiced by fellows sometimes. Isn't it, isn't it a kind of a victory that they're even talking about assessments a lot? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
you know, and not to say that like, you know, they came to the fellowship and then everybody saw the light and now everybody's cured or whatever. Like mm-hmm. people have been thinking about assessments for a long time, but the fellowship offered this point, you know, what, what does it afford? What are the support? What are the affordances of the fellowship? A meta study. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it gives people the time and space to, to read some common things, to read some stuff from the social sciences that they wouldn't have otherwise probably, you know, probably mm-hmm. encountered. Um, and then it, you know, gives them a group of people who have that common language and that time and place to like, to unpack it with them. And then, and then they can integrate that into their own practice. Like, you know, it's not like a bait and sw- I, I think in, in large part, and I think Debbie talked about this a little bit as well. Like, it's not really like a bait and switch, you know, people come in with what, what you're do what they're doing already, right. Whatever their curricular materials are and instructional methods and stuff. And the point is to wipe the slate clean and replace, right. The point is to, to grow. Um, mm-hmm. And that's true for all of us learning anything. So, yeah. I was just thinking that we should do a reverse episode one time, interview the host, but I can't write any questions. Stop. Stop trying to blame stuff on me. I can already tell how that's going to go. I, I think I, I might be, I, I don't know. People like to talk about themselves, I think. I'm pretty sure I really hate it. All the more reason. <laughs> so, okay, so somewhat less creepily, you've looked at interviews from members from that very first cohort of the fellows. And this was done like way after the fact. It was retrospective. After a couple of years, we're like, you remember what, mm-hmm. what you were thinking? Um, but are there any themes that cross over to um, mm-hmm. you think to when we're when you know when we're thinking about in the moment and that phone's on the table and they're talking about it to looking back at their experience? Does anything seem like it's connecting or? I think you're, there definitely should be points of overlap, <laughs> um, and we should figure that out as we write up this. <laughs> Interview study, okay. and as I write up the other one, don't tell the don't tell the listeners, but um, you know both are in progress. Okay, well, we have to ask them to plug their ears before you say things. Yeah. Don't want them to hear. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, I want to. This is actually something I don't think I've ever talked about with you. Maybe we have. I don't know. But I want to think about the idea of creativity for a minute in science. Is that okay with mm-hmm. you? Sure. Okay. So to me, it's pretty easy to follow the logic of how science is done. It's almost too logical. You know, you you try to figure out what's already been done, what people kind of mm-hmm. agree on or what's still up in the mm-hmm. air. And you say, oh, it'd be nice or it'd be cool or it'd be interesting or it'd be helpful or whatever. It might move the needle, whatever, blah, blah, blah. If we also knew X, Y, Z. Super mm-hmm. like, yeah, rational, logical. Mm-hmm. Um, so may- maybe I should stop here and say that um, despite your logistician ISTJ pigeonhole we put mm-hmm. you in, I do think of you as creative, although I don't really know why. I can't really point to <laughs> why I, why I uh, associate that trait with you. So maybe mm-hmm. what, so what what's, and without looking it up, what do you, what do you think of when people say creativity what is what is that just generally Um, creativity i think it's a sort of a willingness to think outside of 
whatever the bounds are of your given situation. I would write that down on an exam if somebody asked me yeah. what the definition of creativity. Okay, so I have this little book John Cleese wrote called Whoa. Creativity. It's tiny. It's it's too much money for how much book it is and how you can read it. <laughs> but it's it's cool and it has some connections to some other books too. So he starts off by saying by creativity, I simply mean new ways of thinking about things. So that's oh. more or less what you're saying. So I don't need the book. <laughs> well, I don't know. So far, the book has gotten me really wanting this other book called Hairbrain Tortoise Mind by this mm. person called Guy Claxton. He talks about how there's two kinds of thinking, two ways of thinking. The first, he says, involves figuring matters out, weighing up pros and cons, constructing arguments, solving problems. For example, blah, 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 like a scientist trying to interpret an intriguing experimental result. Then there's another kind of thinking, which he calls the tortoise mind, that proceeds more slowly. It's often less purposeful, less clear-cut, more playful, leisurely, or dreamy. <laughs> In this mode, we are ruminating or mulling things over, being contemplative or meditative. We may be pondering a problem rather than earnestly trying to solve it. So that part, when I read that, I... It brought me back to something you said in one of these podcasts where you're talking about churning and burning on a paper that's been like a monkey on your back. Where does creativity fit into that process of like doing that churn and burn, but doing it maybe in a way that's not been done before? Um, I have a couple of thoughts. One is that when I applied for my current job, you know, I had to give a talk hmm. and the first part of the talk was introducing yourself. And I wanted to demonstrate and share that, like, I really value doing things that take a long time. I talked to them about how I'm like, you know, I persevere and um, and do things that kind of take a long time and like to ruminate. And one of the words I had up to describe myself was slow. And my husband was like, do not go into a job talk and tell them that you are slow. <laughs> the tortoise mind. <laughs> right. But that's what it was. And in fact, my daughter had drawn a picture of a turtle because and I, I brought it up because it was like everybody just started in quarantine and everybody's kids were home. And so it was kind of like this cute moment where I was like, OK, this is what I'm trying to say. I'm kind of like a turtle. Um, and he's like, just don't call yourself slow. So then I changed it to persevere. But the way that that kind of thing manifests in my own work life is the ability to kind of like explore weird and different areas of scholarship. It's, you know, being able to kind of to, to have the license to sit back and sort of, I think about a lot in terms of reading, like reading different kinds of papers and like reading things that are not actually for a given project at that time, but they're just sort of like, I don't know, you know, you came across them, they looked interesting to you and you went like, oh yeah, I'm going to take a mm -hmm. look at that. And I feel like a lot of us are very concerned with like work-life balance and like making sure that we like have our own personal time and stuff and that's fine. But I'm actually, I'm, I really am, I want my own job to reflect that I have like what I'll call work-work balance, like where work, work, I have that time to kind of to not be on the ball, to not be producing, to not be, you know, doing whatever it is that you're doing, but that you, you have that time to sort of like professionally rest and professionally grow 
I feel, you know, it's, it's easy to deprioritize that kind of stuff when you're in the face of a deadline or, you know, some boss who's saying whatever. But that, I think, to bring it back to creativity, like that kind of thing, I think helps, um, you know, helps foster creativity in people. All right, let me just, add, I'm going to ask you some silly questions, okay? Oh, boy. Okay. I'm so, gr- I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so, I've been waiting for these. Okay, you've got... Let's just say hypothetically, you got a dirty room, a dirty desk, and a dirty car. Which do you clean first? <laughs> she's rewriting. Oh. She's writing something down. Um, Becky's like drawing out a out in graph paper her room and her desk. And her car. <laughs> well, okay, I definitely wouldn't. Well, I don't know. Do you mean messy or dirty? Uh, let's let's say messy. Okay. She's straining. I wish we could see how hard she's straining on this one. <laughs> um. Video you got a one in three chance of getting it right, Becky. I think if I had a messy desk, that would be fine with me because I often I don't I don't have like a super messy desk, but I definitely have like a lived-in desk. Like I kind of have a nest. Okay. Um. So not the desk. Not the desk. I think I would probably start with the car because hmm. we generally try to keep our cars pretty like clean of junk. Um, they might not be totally clean yeah. but we try to get like you know all the kid crud out of there interesting what do you think right. of um garden gnomes please <laughs> no garden gnomes i do what? love i uh, i don't know what your answer is you said please and you said no garden gnomes oh no i do i don't own any garden gnomes I, that's not the question the question is what like do you them. think of them you don't like them i don't think i would like them i don't know <laughs> i don't think i want any garden gnomes or i don't like okay i guess this is like a springtime episode i don't know sure all right well, this one's easier ready she's really yeah. she's really getting herself in the right in the right spot for this one yeah would you rather fight 100 Duck size horses or one horse size duck? A <laughs> hundred, a hundred duck sized horses. Um, like to the death. Um, I think that's the implication. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'd have to go with the little guys. I could, I could really like punch them a little or something, oh. but. A horse-sized duck. I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah, let, let's not say you have to kill them all. Let's just say you have to get out of there. Um, They're blocking a door. I have a picture of a bunch of ducks following me, actually. I should put that up as a little... A little uh, artwork? Episode artwork? Yeah. I don't know. That's okay. a tough one. Okay, you have, yet to, you have yet... Oh, no, you did answer the first one. You said car, right? Okay. Car. This is the last one. Let's say somebody gives you an elephant. You can't, you cannot sell it or give it away. What do you do with it? Oh my God. I would kill it. I oh. <laughs> what do you, I mean, is it at my house or do I just own it? I should, that's what I should have asked for. Right. Is it at I, my house? I mean, I don't think it can fit in your house, but. It doesn't matter. It, if it's at my house, it's going to die. If it's not at my house, we can own it. Sure. Okay, I'll keep it. <laughs> wait, wait. You're gonna, so you're just saying you're going to keep it somewhere off the property? It lives in an elephant refuge. Oh, yeah. it's got to live at your house. 
I don't have that big of a house. Um, and it's already loud as. <laughs> I appreciate you deflecting on all of the questions I tried to ask you. You're welcome. I don't know. Did we figure anything out here, Becky? Mm. Today? I think we figured out that our moms are listening. Yep, that's true. <laughs> we'll have to pick up next time from there. Yep. Next time won't be all throwing the throwing the football to ourselves, so it should be easier next time. I have to get my game face on. Yep. All right. Bye, Becky. Bye. Bye.